Welcome to a 2015 Traumatic Brain Injury Consumer Conference podcast, sponsored by Kessler Foundation and Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Guest speaker, Catherine Brubaker, founder of HopeForTrauma.org. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, September 24, 2015, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System with support from the National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, Administration for Community Living, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Washington, D.C., grant number H133A120030030. Our next speaker is Katherine Brubaker. Katherine is the founder of HopeForTrauma.org, an organization committed to encouraging a national conversation about brain injury, its invisible challenges, and the impact on survivors and their families. Catherine is a two-time survivor who in 2014 rode her recumbent cycle 5,390 miles across the U.S. to raise awareness for brain injury. Catherine has shared her journey of hope around the country and helped empower individuals with her message of freedom and the power of self-advocacy. Please give a warm welcome to Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Catherine Brubaker. I am a brain injury survivor, and this is my story. I came from a humble Christian home. I was one of three children. We had a very simple life. My father read bedtime stories with a moral lesson to us every Friday night. We were raised with clear, simple values. We still have those storybooks today. My father was a self-employed contractor. My parents made the decision to put three children through private church schools. Even as a young couple, they had their priorities in order. They made many sacrifices. They sent us to private academy. My mother, father, and all three children held jobs in order to make this possible. My parents stayed in the original home they bought when they were very first married, making our education a priority over keeping up with the Joneses. I was the very first person in my immediate family to finish college, receiving my bachelor's in science and psychology from Pacific Union College in Napa Valley, California, which was also a private school. I was published with my professor in the Western Psychological Association. After college, I taught in special education for many years. I then went into sales management and into business consulting and into the financial services industry where I found most of my success serving members of our military. When my father passed away unexpectedly in 2005, they handed me his boots and his wallet. But I knew I had received much more. I had clear values because he led by example. He made many sacrifices for me so that I could have a future. I immediately signed up for my master's degree, and I obtained that from Grand Canyon University in organizational leadership. I maintained a 4.0 while working full-time in management. I was a very motivated leader, and I led by example, just like my father. I had a platform on which to demonstrate my leadership skills. I had all of my sales goals and was fast-tracked. I had a place to contribute in society, and I knew my value. I knew my role in society, and I knew who I was. I had an intelligent and beautiful partner of many years. We owned homes and had two dogs. We had toys and a flexible schedule to play. We traveled the world together. We experienced many cultures. We went on cruises and visited tiny islands in the middle of nowhere. 
we were happy. I was a black diamond skier and was even asked to be on a ski team. I ran two miles a day, rain or shine. We enjoyed the outdoors. I was at the top of my game. We built a life together. I guess you can say I put all my eggs in one basket. We were a family. One weekend, my partner and I decided to go to the family cabin in the mountains where my father and grandfather built the cabin. We knew most everyone in the neighborhood because most of their grandparents and parents built theirs too. That night we met up with some friends for a night out. It was a very boots and jeans kind of a place. I didn't know it could happen to me. The moment I unknowingly accepted a drink laced with a drug, surrounded by people I thought I could trust, is the moment my life changed forever. I guess I just didn't picture myself as that vulnerable 20-something out clubbing. I mean, I was 39 and in a monogamous relationship for many years. We were naive to the dangers that are out there today. It is shockingly easy to be unknowingly drugged, unaware of any strategy intended to render you incapable of defending yourself. It is the most invasive and disturbing experience to be deceived on that level and have your self-control taken over by someone else without your permission and not know that it is happening or why. We were sexually assaulted. The night is in flashes of memories. Things that stand out to me to this day are not being able to call out for help and not being able to control my limbs. My partner woke me up the next day. I was naked, lying in a pool of blood, and had a deep stab wound to my throat. This caused an anoxic brain injury. I literally bled out and had no oxygen support overnight. We were left for dead. I was weak, pale, struggling to function, and found it difficult to balance. There was a lot of confusion and inability to make clear decisions. We both had amnesia and confusion from being drugged. What I didn't know then was that I had brain damage from being overdosed and that I had the effects of hypoxia. I was taken to my primary care where my body began uncontrollable convulsions. 911 was called. I remember a porta potty. The nurse thought I was having my period. I knew I had already gone through menopause five years prior, but I couldn't find my words. I was still hemorrhaging three days later. My heart rate dropped to as low as 38 several times. No one could explain why, and we couldn't help. At the time, they did a CT scan. I recently discovered that CT scans only show bleeding in the brain. I had already bled out. Eventually, my heart rate stabilized and I was sent home. A few days later, we began remembering, then talking about that horrific details of the night. We called our primary care and he ordered tests immediately. During the next two months, my brain atrophied severely. I experienced a global de decline in cognitive functioning. I became overwhelmed by simple tasks. I lost my ability to balance. I couldn't walk by myself. My speech was very delayed. 
I scored in the profoundly impaired range in tests measuring processing speed and reading. I slept most of the time. I had extremely limited in attention, attention and concentration. I lost my abilities to feed or shower myself. I needed help in the bathroom. I became a child again, and I mean that in every sense of the word, emotionally, cognitively, and in my physical abilities. I was diagnosed with diffused axonal hypoxic brain injury, post-concussive syndrome, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. So after four years of graduate school, four years of college math, statistics, and working in the financial industry for a living, I was reduced to eighth grade math and scored in the second percentile in oral math. Most of the time, I was disoriented to the day, month, and year. But the single most debilitating deficit was a profound short-term memory loss. Procedural memory, like brush your teeth, get dressed, then eat breakfast. Then you go to the kitchen, open the refrigerator, and stand there, and you know why you're there, but you can't make a decision for the life of you, and your bladder's full, and the pressure's overwhelming, but you're determined to get the, done what you're there to do, which is to brush your teeth. I began reclaiming my life through 18 months of rehab, for which I was grateful. Speech, occupational, and physical therapy three days a week. The other days were psychologists, neuropsychologists, neurologists, psychiatrists, and balanced doctors. We even went to marriage counseling. I remember looking at flashcards with pictures saying the word fork, 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 over and over again. My partner became my caretaker. After years of investing in a relationship, she could look right into my eyes and miss my soul. I don't know where I went. Neither one of us knew if I'd be back. She took me to the bathroom, to the shower. She fed me, brought me toast, put up with my temper tantrums, my endless crying, took me to every doctor's appointment, put me to bed, fought the insurance battles, managed the onslaught of medical and legal papers, and fought for justice. Caretakers, does this ring a bell? For those of you who do not have support, I highly recommend reaching out. If you do not, you will burn out. You cannot love someone else unless you love yourself first. I had major changes in my personality. I had temper tantrums like a two-year-old over ice cream. I would cry all the time for no reason. I slept all the time. I slept during appointments. I would last 15 minutes. Then my doctor would take her next appointment in the room adjacent. <clears throat> Some of my therapy would be life skills, like using the microwave to make oatmeal. It would take the entire 45 minutes, get the bowl out, get the spoon, put the oatmeal in, put the water in. <clears throat> I had lack of judgment, like not being able to drive, but I thought I could. <clears throat> so I would wait for her to fall asleep, and I knew Dairy Queen stayed open till 10. So I would take the keys, and it was right around the block, and I went over a few curbs, and there are a few dents in the bumper. <clears throat> and I remember not knowing what was more important, the melting ice cream or paying attention to the road, and I could not multitask. So the keys were hidden because I did blurt. <laughs> um, so it, there were things like that. Um, impulsive behavior, like spending, so I'm no longer in charge of my money. Um, blurting, how many of you are survivors? 
Can you relate to that, flirting? So if you see me out, I usually have someone with me because I no longer trust myself. And you kind of have to learn that trust over again. It's like going through a loss, like the death of who you used to be. And you have to go through all the stages of grief. Denial. I'm not that, that disabled person. Angry. Angry at my circumstances. Control. I'm going to take it out on the people closest to me. Bargaining. How long am I going to be like this? I remember asking, am I going to get better? And the answer was, let's see where you are in a year. Then after a year, is this going to get better? And the answer became, let's adjust your expectations. That was a long ride home. Then, of course, the depression. I ate a lot of toast and watched a lot of Lifetime. Acceptance we'll talk about later. I began to have problems with my blood pressure. I started to pass out or get lightheaded every time I stood up. Then things began to get more serious. I developed severely painful attacks, chest pain, bradycardia, low blood pressure. I would sweat profusely. As a result of my anoxic brain injury, I developed dysautonomia, a failure of the autonomic nervous system. The parasympathetic and sympathetic systems no longer communicate with each other, and my body quit regulating my heart rate, my blood pressure, digestion, body temperature, and blood pools in my legs and abdomen. Orthostatic hypotension. There is no cure. The electric signal was no longer getting to my heart, so I received a pacemaker. I was given blood pressure meds to increase my blood pressure. I'm currently on the maximum amount of medication possible, currently. So we treat the symptoms. Elevate the head of my bed, rapid wa water infusions, high salt diet, midodrine to increase the blood pressure, and flutocortisone. On the way home from the pacemaker surgery, <clears throat> we were in another head-on collision. An elderly lady turned left in the intersection right in front of us. We were going about 40 miles an hour. We hit her, then hit an 18-inch aqueduct. My partner managed to thread the SUV right between a light pole and the boulder size of a vehicle with inches to spare. It happened so fast.
went right back to the hospital I just came from. Here I was thinking this is my new bottom. Bed pans, stool softeners, pressure stockings for my entire legs, a dark room because light is painful, sunglasses, harnesses for walking, unbearable headaches, tendonitis that never goes away, flashcards. I knew the drill. This was my world for a month, and then I was transferred to an inpatient facility for another month of therapy, and of course, the outpatient therapy that followed. So after four years of college algebra and statistics, I'm reduced to sixth grade math, and I still can't add a tip. I still struggle with reading and awkward social situations. This took a toll on my relationship, and it finally broke. The strain was too much for a relationship. I was sent back to my mother. I found myself on my mother's couch with my entire life lovingly packed in boxes, stacked five feet high in the living room, not knowing what was in the box until I found the courage to open each box to find things labeled. Each box was a surprise. I became a shut-in. My mother would encourage me to go to the grocery store with her on senior discount day, but even that was overstimulating. The overwhelming experience of people walking towards you while you're gripping the cart for dear life and you simply stop because your body doesn't know what to do with all of that information. And then 50 choices of shampoo, really? One morning, I woke with a strange feeling and went to the living room to find my mother sitting on the couch with my hand-painted glass on her chest. She had passed away just hours before. We buried her with my father, who we lost just five years before. I now live in the care of my brother in the same house, in the same 10 by 10 room I was in when I was in a crib. And even though I had met a few friends on the internet, I decided that I had had enough. I attempted to take my life. I sent out three text messages with the words, I love you, which caused some curiosity. Luckily, my aunt did find me and called 911. It was a serious attempt, and I was hospitalized. My brother decided to ride a bike to work. I didn't want to be left out, so I went with him to the bike store. I was still using a walker. I picked the prettiest bike in the store. I found out I couldn't balance a bike and was sent to Sun Cyclery, where they sold recumbent trikes. I had never seen one. I wasn't happy until I got the fastest recumbent bike made in the United States. I rode around the block, then 10 miles, then all the way to grandma's and back. And one day that wasn't enough, so I went across Tempe Town Lake, and then I saw him. There was Dan, a stroke survivor. We screeched on our brakes and almost hit each other. We were riding the same trike, we even had on the same color jerseys. And when he spoke, his speech was delayed. And I thought, ah, someone like me. He showed me his card, and on the back of his card, his plan. He was leaving in six weeks. So I went back to my 10 by 10 room, and I looked around at what my tiny little shut-in life had become, and I thought, without hesitation, I'm doing this. I had three months to raise more than $10,000 and train, and I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I was going to do it. So I sat in the kitchen of my new friend, Joanne Berger, who's sitting right over there, who helped me set up a GoFundMe account, and my new friends, who I barely knew, who threw a huge fundraiser, and my friend taught me to use a bus and the light rail. In six weeks, I raised over $10,000. That was the first time in my life I had ever asked for money for myself. 
A chance meeting while riding bikes has turned into a cross-country journey for two valley people. Catherine Brubaker and Dan Zimmerman are four days into a bike ride that will take them from the west coast to the east coast. The grueling ride is symbolic of what they have overcome. Both suffered traumatic brain injuries. Kevin Kennedy has more on their Connecting Arizona journey, an inspirational story. Four years ago, this wasn't possible. Catherine Brubaker was assaulted. It absolutely is debilitating. During the attack, oxygen to her brain was cut off, the damage extensive. I lost my independence. I was very angry and sad for a long time. A corporate executive with a master's degree, Catherine became a child all over again. When I was tested by the the psychiatrist, it took me back to sixth grade levels. Unable to walk or talk for months, she has fought back. Hope and inspiration found on three wheels. I am living. I choose to live. This bike has given me more freedom than I ever thought possible. Dan Zimmerman has a similar tale. After a stroke, doctors told him he would never walk or talk again. Nobody tells me not to uh, do it. Like Catherine, his bike has given Dan freedom. Plain and simple. The past few months, Dan and Catherine have been training, preparing for a ride many would think is crazy. The moment I decided to do this is when I took back my life. Together, they will ride 5,200 miles from Washington to Florida, each with a purpose. Hopefully, I give hope for stroke survivors. I want to show others that you can achieve something beyond your wildest imagination. Dan came up with the idea last year. The ride expected to take five months. My legs strong, breathing strong. This trip, this journey has become bigger than both of them. I feel that I have a purpose larger than life. I feel that I have a goal. For traumatic brain injury patients, this ride is designed to empower, showing them anything is possible. Kevin Kennedy, 12 News. Now, Catherine and Dan are in the first week of the ride. They are currently in Washington State. This video shows them riding through the mountains and plenty of pine trees east of Seattle. If you would like to follow them on their journey, go to their websites, spokesfightingspokes.org. So we took off. We drove up to Anacortes, Washington. We had a big send-off party. We dipped our tires in the Pacific Ocean. We were let out by the Skagit Bicycle Club. And in the first state, we climbed 28,540 feet. It was gorgeous. We rode in utter silence, three inches from the ground across the United States. Talk about meditation. We went over five mountain passes. We had snowball fights. We rode over the Cascades. We were even in a parade. One day, I got ahead of the group by a full state. I was so very proud of myself. It was a skinny part of Idaho. When a motorcycle couple took my picture, I was pedaling uphill in first gear with my camelback in my mouth, and I came across this. He had some roadkill, and I sounded like Darth Vader, which caught his attention. So he turned his head, and slobber went all over the grass, and he growled at me, and I couldn't remember what to do, be big, be small. So I text for help. But there was no coverage, and he knew that. That's why he was hunting there. Finally, there was a car, and that didn't scare him, but another one came, and then he ran away but I was not prepared for the dangers of the road. We went on over the Continental Divide. We turned southeast and followed the Lewis and Clark Trail. And as I began to tell my story, people began to tell me theirs. And I realized how many people not only had significant trauma in their lives, but brain injuries. People who had supported me on my ride. Those are the people who came forward with their personal stories and their checkbooks, and then it hit me. I am not alone. 
So I began dedicating my rides each day to someone with a brain injury. I would tell their story on Facebook and hold them in intention the entire day while I rode across America and posted. People engaged. They were interested. The more stories I told, the more I rode, the more responses I had. More importantly, a conversation was beginning, an important one, between survivors, caretakers, and the public. I rode for Joe, survivor. He works for Sun Cyclery in Arizona. He rode his bike an hour and a half to come get me because I couldn't remember how to get back to the bicycle shop for service before my ride. He's a manager. They sponsored me on the trip with tubes, tires, shorts, and jerseys, and bicycle parts. I felt like a child going off to school for the very first time when I pedaled away. When I looked back, every grown man in that shop had tears in their eyes. They knew what they had done for me. They believed in me. Looking back, that's all I really needed. I wrote for Michael Koss, survivor. He's from Canada. He raised over $20,000 for his foundation. By typing with the one finger he had left that did work after his brain injury, he donated to my ride without me knowing and followed my progress. He told me daily I gave him hope. He knew what it meant to have someone believe in you. He, spe he speaks about brain injury and has a documentary. He has an amazing story of survival. I rode for Drew Forsey, survivor. He's a cyclist. He had an accident. His mother followed my journey. I met Donna O'Donnell Figurski, caretaker and spouse. She hosts a brain injury radio show called Another Fork in the Road. I started by telling my story on her show. Survivors, if you want a good place to start to tell your story, this is a great place to start. Her husband was a professor at Columbia University, also a survivor. He is dependent on his wife. He followed my entire journey. I rode for him. Every day, I rode for someone and posted their ride on Facebook. Then. I discovered Facebook brain injury support groups. I never knew there were so many of us, all talking about the same challenges. Isolation, lost friendships, lost family, nobody understands me. I don't know who I am anymore. I became a monster today and yelled at my children and supporting each other. I drove for the very first time. I got my first apartment today. I walked in heels at a gala event. I started dating again. Woohoo! The discovery was pivotal for me. I wished I had discovered this in my early recovery. I started to, this ride to take back my life, but I realized not only was I giving people hope, but for the first time since my brain injury, I had a purpose larger than myself. We made, it to hit, we made it a point to hit the news in every state. After hearing our story, one woman actually stopped her car, got out, and hugged us. Complete strangers would bring tomatoes from their gardens and stay for dinner just to hear our story. We rode our trikes right into the television stations, and they would take us on the spot. A turning point for me was Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is about freedom and the struggle for independence. Looking back, it was no coincidence that our journey brought us to that place. Here we were taking back our freedom. These men pursued their dreams of freedom during times of trial. We were pursuing our dream of freedom and independence through our trials, one pedal at a time. And it wasn't just my freedom that mattered anymore, because I was not alone. The monuments are overwhelming in size. The irony was I was right next to Dan, my writing partner, who has an obvious limp from a stroke. He made it all the way through the park that day walking. 
I did not. The sheer size of the mon monuments are overstimulating for my brain to process. I had a hard time explaining why I could ride my bike across the entire country and still need a wheelchair to get through the airport. I knew I was overstimulated and couldn't balance. A conversation took place that day, a life-changing conversation. Someone told me, Catherine, you are not disabled. Someone who cannot walk is disabled. I have disability. I even have the tag that goes in your car. I cannot drive, but I have the tag. And that's it. I realized people don't see my brain injury. They don't see the daily struggles that I have to keep organized, my daily tasks, problems concentrating, remembering what day of the week it is, challenges reading, getting overstimulated, explosiveness, survivors, can you relate? I felt invisible. Something rose up in me. So I wrote my battle cry. I am a survivor. I will not go down quietly. I ride for freedom. I ride for hope. I ride for those who can't. I ride for those who won't. I ride for those afraid to have a voice. I am the face of TBI, of PTSD. I am not invisible. See my face, hear my cry. I am a leader. I will not go down. Rise up with me. Lift us from the chains that bind us. Let us ride free. Our light will shine bright for all the world to see. I became passionate about the media. I was on a journey of hope with the message of giving the invisible a voice. I was tired of being silenced, misunderstood, abandoned by friends, and invisible. I kept seeing it over and over again in the chat rooms. Hundreds and hundreds of posts, people crying. It became very clear that I had not only a desire, but the responsibility to not only tell my story, but to start a conversation, a larger conversation. One time, we rode up to McDonald's. There was a lady in a wheelchair who had just had a stroke. She was curious about her trikes, and we shared our stories. And tears began to well up in her eyes. And she reached up around our necks. And she just clinged to us. And she looked us right in the eyes. And she said to us, I will walk again. And she said it with such conviction, it just took my breath away. And I thought, I had just come from my 10 by 10 room in utter isolation to I'm out for a bike ride, to I'm not alone, to I'll ride for someone someday, to I'm giving people hope, and it blew my mind. So for the first time since my trauma, I not only found my voice, but I had the utmost clarity of purpose for the first time in my life ever. We rode our trikes into every news station we could find, and they took us. We worked hard. We played hard. I even did my own Wheaties commercial. We got stronger and stronger until one day we did a century ride. That's 100 miles a day. And then another, back to back. It was like riding through the history of America. We rode the Lewis and Clark Trail, the Katy Trail, the Natchez Trace, followed the Trail of Tears. We even saw the Underground Railroad. I physically saw towers where slaves hid during the day, places I've only read about right in front of my eyes. And as the seasons changed, I began to change. 
I began to understand the sacrifices made in this country and for this country and what my freedom really means to me. We saw more beauty than I can ever capture or express as an artist. Roads lined with picket fences. I found joy in little things. These are what the people who supported me gave to me. They are precious and priceless to me. For two survivors who had just had their lives suddenly snatched away from them, this is perhaps the most beautiful journey two human beings can have. We found our independence. We found our freedom through triking. And then it happened. One day we rode over the hill and saw the ocean. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but we turned left and kept going. Then we got to Florida and headed south. Along our journey, we stopped at a bike shop for a break, and I ran into Michael Gladwin, a consequential stranger. I told him our story. I had no idea he ran the largest cycling club in Florida. We gave him our card. We finally got to Key West. The tourism office arranged for NBC to come all the way down from Miami to film sandcastles. But they were interested in filming our finale. However, it was the day earlier than we had planned. So it was decided by the group that we were unable to accommodate eight miles to meet the press. So I packed an overnight bag, zip tied a toothbrush to the frame of my trike, and booked a hotel in Key West for a night to attempt to salvage the finale. This is how I spent my Thanksgiving in 2014. I crossed the seven mile bridge. I had every emotion possible. I let go of my mother. I cried so hard I couldn't pedal. I let go of my attackers. I even forgave them. I let go of my fear, my anger, and mostly, I saw myself as a survivor. And in that moment, I realized I had accomplished something monumental. I finally found my freedom. It was symbolically and literally the end of my journey. What I didn't know was it was the beginning. It was my big girl moment. I did not connect with NBC, but I walked into a radio station and the host put me on air within two minutes. I was broad all over, broadcast all over Key West, Miami, and Fort Lauderdale. When I rode down Duval Street on my bike with three wheels and a flagpole, people were clapping. They knew what, who I was. I met people who bought my Thanksgiving dinner that night and left without telling me they had done so. My friends flew in the next day and helped me set up the next morning to have a finale the way it should be. So I waited for Dan to come around the corner, and my friends waited in line for our turn, our turn for the pictures. Watching the sun bake All of those tourists covered with oil Running my six train On my front porch swing Good job, kids. Good job. And you got the We rode fifty three hundred ninety miles total. What I learned was sometimes the bad things that happen in our lives put us directly on the path to the best things that will ever happen to us. When I returned, I spoke at the retirement center. Five people bought recumbent trikes. 
Jack is one of them. I met John Hammer at Brain Injury Survivor that Christmas Eve at my grandmother's. He served our country with my cousin in Iraq. He went out the next week after Christmas and bought a trike. He now rides with his family as a family. Columbia professor David Figursky, survivor, husband of Donna O'Donnell Figursky, the radio show host, rides independently now without depending on his wife and has logged 1,232 miles. Drew Forsey got his trike. He's an avid rider. He is now also rock climbing. I actually got to meet his mother in Denver. It was an emotional meeting of consequential strangers. One day, I was left to my own devices, and I surprised Joanne and found out about Brain Injury Day in Washington, D.C., so I booked a ticket all by myself. I got appointments with my congressional leaders in advance, Ubered all to the right buildings on time by myself and back to the conference and all the events all by myself, and did it without telling Joanne. It was my first time to Washington, D.C. When I met Congressman Congresswoman Kristen Cinema, it was like poetry in motion. I asked for very specific things. I had a bullet point list. I even asked for things I didn't think she would do. Everything I asked of her was met with an action item immediately by her assistant. It felt like before my head injury, here I was leading change, only in Washington, D.C. It was the highest moment in my recovery. Then there was this young man who had a brilliant idea to ride his bike across the country. Daniel Molino, survivor. I followed every day of his ride. He has an incredible will to survive and an incredible passion to make a difference. I snuck a picture with Senator Cory Booker. I met Dr. Lacassira and shared my story, which turned into an invitation to speak here. I was invited to speak at the American Society on Aging and Recumbent and Recovery. Dan and I spoke at a special gala. I was invited to speak at my alma mater and at my graduate school and featured in an alumni magazine. Remember Michael Gladwin? Dan and I both were invited to speak at the Florida Bicycle Safari and the cyclist passed a hat, and we were able to raise enough money to give away our first trike. Crystal McFall was a recipient. She had Arnold Chiari malformation. She's in physical therapy now and rides up and down the street. I'm now filming my own documentary so that more people can understand what it's like to see life through the eyes of a brain injury survivor and give hope to other survivors. I'd like to introduce hope for trauma. I want to see the look on people's faces when they feel the breeze on their face, knowing that they are free to go wherever they want to go for the very first time after having their whole lives uprooted. I want to give them that trike or that resource that bridges the gap between isolation and freedom. There are 5.3 million of us that have brain injuries. Many of us are isolated because that's what we do. Some of us need help and won't get it. We need to tell our stories. People want to hear them. There's a gap filled with fear and misunderstanding, and as I see it, huge room for improvement. It's time to have a conversation that brings understanding to the challenges that caretakers and survivors have so that as a community, we can better adapt. I'm on fire about leading that change and a culture of understanding. My vision, our vision at Hope for Trauma, is to be an advocate in a national conversation about brain injury and the invisible challenges survivors and their families have every day. Our mission is to provide recumbent trikes and other innovative resources to improve the quality of life for brain injury survivors. But I can't do it alone. I need the help of my community my business leaders, and organizations who will help me lead and fund this change. I need survivors and caretakers to tell their stories until we're heard and understood. We need to build a platform in order to do that. Because in the end, 
I'm just a girl on a trike. I'd like to introduce and thank someone who believes in me every day, my new chairman of the board, Hope for Trauma, Joanne Berger. Thank you for your time.